Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are going to be looking at Parshat Re'eh this morning. For those of you uh, who are unfamiliar with how we learn here, we study on the triennial cycle. So Jews for a long time um, read the Torah over a period of three years. Uh, In the late medieval period, they shifted to reading the whole Torah annually. Um, But many, many Jews continue to read on a triennial cycle, but we want to be on the same Torah portion as every other Jewish community. So how do you read annually and triennially um, and stay together on the same Torah portion? It means that we read a third of each Torah portion over a year. And then we come back to the same Torah portion the next year and read the next third. So we read disjointed thirds, <laughs> but I don't know, it kind of works. So um, I started doing this a very long time ago when I first started teaching, um, when I first became a rabbi 25 years ago, I, um, I decided to read on the triennial because otherwise it's very easy to pick what you like from a Torah portion and then just keep picking that every year and to avoid the texts that are problematic. It's very easy to say, not teaching that, not going near that, um, which means you don't really learn as a teacher most of a lot of the Torah. So for me to really have to confront most of the Torah, most of the time means I read on the triennial cycle and generally don't deviate from that. Same with this morning. So one of the commentators that I studied to prepare for this morning said, This is the time where most rabbis are on vacation, so they don't have to teach this. And that's good for them, that they don't have to teach this. And here we are. I'm going to teach it anyway, because I, because like I said, I think it's really important for us to confront the difficult texts um, and figure out what to do with them. Even if we say we reject it wholeheartedly, that's fine, too. Um, And I, of course, I start there a lot of times like, ugh, I can't even I can't even bring this to them. Oh, my God. Um, And then, like with some reflection and reading and study of other people who've had to confront these texts, including, you know, the Hasidic masters or the our great commentators from the medieval period. um, It's like, oh, right. (laughs) Right. There is something here that's that's really interesting for us to talk about. So so it is with this morning's Torah portion. Okay. So uh, as you know, since we're on Zoom, we were hoping to be back in person, but given the mask mandate in LA County, uh, it seemed a little hard to imagine us being in a room all masked and people on Zoom looking at us all masked and trying to understand what's going on or what we're saying. Um, And this seems to work for now. So, you know, we'll continue to have the discussion. I don't want you to think we've stopped conversation. Um, We haven't. So we want to keep hearing your feedback. Um, for now, anyway, we're going to we're going to continue a little bit on Zoom. OK, so what we do next, as you know, is that we um, are going to look at the text itself. The text itself can be found at hebcal.com. Um, hebcal.com will show you the the portion, the triennial reading and then if you click on the triennial reading, it will take you to Safaria, which is a home for all of our sacred texts. So Safaria is a wonderful playground to have fun in um, with all of our sacred texts. Talmud, Mishnah, 
Torah, prophets, all of it is there on Safaria. Are we going to say a prayer? Probably. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so let us be. It's been a while. Uh, let's begin with the bracha for Torah study. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzvotav Betzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah. Blessed are you, God, Spirit of the Universe, who makes us holy with your mitzvot and calls us to engage with words of Torah. All right, so let us look at the text for this morning. We are in Parshat Re'e, starting at chapter 12, verse 29, for the, we are in the second year of the triennial cycle. So we're in the middle third of every Torah portion. That puts us at the following. When Adonai, you're, and remember when the book, we're in the book of Deuteronomy, this is Moshe's talk to the people before they cross into the promised land. You've had lots of teaching from these wonderful, amazing people who stepped up for August, lots of teaching about what it is Moshe saying to the people before they cross into the promised land. When Adonai, your God, has cut down before you the nations that you are about to enter and dispossess, and you have dispossessed them and settled in their land. Beware of being lured into their ways after they have been wiped out before you. Do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did those nations worship their gods? I, too, will follow those practices. You shall not act thus toward yod heh your God, for they perform for their gods every abhorrent act that yod heh detests. They even offer up their sons and daughters in fire to their gods. So child sacrifice. Be careful to observe only that which I enjoin upon you, neither add to it nor take away from it. If there appears among you a prophet or a dream diviner, and he gives you a sign or a portent saying, let us follow and worship another God whom you have not experienced, even if the sign or portent that he named to you comes true, do not heed the words of that prophet or that dream diviner for Adonai your God is testing you to see whether you really love Adonai your God with all your heart and soul. Follow none but Adonai, your God, revere none but God, observe God's commandments alone, heed only God's orders, worship none but God, hold fast to God. As for that prophet or dream diviner, he shall be put to death. For he urged disloyalty to Adonai, your God, who freed you from the land of Egypt and who redeemed you from the house of bondage to make you stray from the path that Adonai, your God, commanded you to follow. Thus, you will sweep out evil from your midst. Carol Kleinman, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. I promise. If your brother, your own mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife of your bosom, or your closest friend entices you in secret, saying, come, let us worship other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have experienced, from among the gods of the peoples around you, either near to you or distant, anywhere from one end of the earth to the other, do not assent or give heed, show no pity, or compassion, do not shield him, but take his life. Let your hand be the first against him to put him to death and the hand of the rest of the people thereafter. This is the punishment of stoning, of course, because this is treason. This is capital punishment for treason. Stone him to death for he sought to make you stray from Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thus all Israel will hear and be afraid and such evil things will not be done again in your midst. If you hear it said that one of the towns that Adonai, your God, is giving you to dwell in, that some scoundrels from among you have gone and subverted the inhabitants of their town, saying, come, let us worship other gods whom you have not experienced. You shall investigate and inquire and interrogate thoroughly. If it is true 
The fact is established that abhorrent thing was perpetrated in your midst. Put the inhabitants of that town to the sword, put its cattle to the sword, doom it and all in it to destruction. Gather all its spoil in the open square and burn down all that spoil as a holocaust to Adonai your God. And it shall remain an everlasting ruin, never to be rebuilt. You will be heeding Adonai your God, obeying all God's commandments that I enjoin upon you this day, doing what is right in the sight of Adonai your God. Okay. Not the easiest of passages to sit with. All right. So let me... Let me talk a little bit about um, what's going on. So we come to a text like this. And the first thing we always think about is that this is about religious zealotry, right? That this is about you are to follow Adonai, your God. And if anyone is going to try to convince you to worship other gods, this is about religion. This is about betraying God as your religious spiritual sovereign and and this is all about religious zealotry and we go to in my mind you know I, this sounds to me like salem and the witch trials and put these people to death um you know who are challenging our religion or how we interpret our religion and i'm not saying that there's not elements of that here i'm not saying that what i what i would like us to do however is to take a moment to step back from our 20 first century sensibilities, step back into the ancient world. And if we step back into ancient Israel, what we have to really confront, what's being confronted here is not about religion. It involves religion because there's no difference between religion and the state. So what's happening here is Moshe's talking about establishing a new political order. This now is a new political reality that has not happened before in the ancient Near East. What is that? That Israel has one sovereign. Who is that sovereign? yud heh In all of the other communities, the nations surrounding ancient Israel, there was a sovereign king and there was a polytheistic system in place. Ancient Israel is coming to absolutely break from polytheism and to break from the sense that the king is somehow related or chosen by the gods and has special access to the gods. That is a very radical move in the ancient world, and it was not going to be popular among many of the people that were now Israelites. Remember, if you remember the history we've talked about, Israel emerged from within Canaanite religion. We don't know exactly how. There are lots of competing theories. And as you know, someday when I do my PhD, this is going to be the topic, right? Like who exactly is responsible for this crazy you know, thing going on in the ancient Near East, in the land of Israel, this whole monotheistic move? This whole reconstruction of the relationship between power, political power, the political system and divinity, um, all of this is, is challenged by Israel. We don't know how, but it happens in Canaan. So most of the people who were early Israelites were converted Canaanites. 
what is a converted Canaanite most likely to turn to when they're unhappy with the new order, with the new system? They are most likely to turn to what they know. So they're going to turn to Baal and Asherah and the system that they were familiar with in terms of power, in terms of protection, in terms of access to the halls of power. If you were a priest of Baal, you're not going to be very happy in a Yahwist community, right? That doesn't give you special access to anything. The Aaronid priesthood now has certain access. But remember, Deuteronomy is saying all of the people are supposed to read this. All of the people are supposed to study the sacred text. All of the people are supposed to read the Constitution and are supposed to hold the leaders responsible to the Constitution. People in power don't love giving over their power to the people, right? So, This is going to be hugely unpopular. What we're reading right here is saying we know this is not going to be popular among a lot of people. And a lot of people are going to be tempted to listen to somebody who says, screw this new system. It does not work for us. Let's go back to what to worshiping Baal. That was a system that worked. Let's go back to polytheism. Let's go back to pagan understandings of what the forces of the universe are about and how they work. Okay. So then you look at the passion behind this. You look at the put them to death, don't spare them, like just how clear that is. And we think, well, okay, wait a minute. That's pretty intense. (laughs) Like that's, that's a pretty intense response. But what we have to really appreciate about this text, we don't have to agree with it. What we have to appreciate is these are three different examples of people being courted into treason. Now, we go, isn't it a little nuts to get so crazy about, okay, so somebody wants to go worship another god? Yeah, that might sound a little crazy to us. Who care who people, who cares who people worship? But Tell me how you feel, and I will own that this is where I went immediately when I actually opened my brain to what's going on here. How do you feel about watching January 6th at the Capitol? How do you feel about that? I can tell you how I feel. (laughs) I was pretty mad. And so mad that it's like, lock them all up. Lock them up, and it should be for a really long time. Because they are encouraging sedition. And by encouraging sedition, they are undermining the very foundations of the freedom that we hold as sacrosanct in this country that we call democracy or a republic, a representative republic. That's what Torah is talking about here. By the way, This exact language of should come when someone come along in secret and say, let us go worship other gods. This is exactly the language that is used in ancient Near Eastern law documents, legal documents about a conquering king talking about a conquered king, a vassal king, someone in that kingdom saying, come, let us serve another king. So this language in Deuteronomy is exactly reflected 
in ancient Near Eastern texts that are about sedition. If I talk about it as sedition, I have a lot more sympathy for where the authors of Deuteronomy are coming from. Because what they're saying is if you allow sedition to go unpunished, if you allow treason to go unpunished, which we still believe in this country because we still punish treason with death. Again, I'm not saying I agree with it or don't, but we still believe this as enough of us believe it that it's still on the books as the law. Treason is punished by death because it is so dangerous. What scared us about the Capitol? Not that people could access the Capitol and do stuff. That's kind of what it means to be in an open society is that you have access to, to the halls of power. That's not what scared a lot of us. What scared us was this is the beginning of a very slippery slope that leads to, for some of us, I'll use the word just to convey the, the, you know, the visceral nature, to fascism, to a totalitarian leader who is going to strip the people of their power that that Capitol building represents. That's the fear. That's the anger. That is what Deuteronomy is talking about. If you start down this slope, you will completely undermine or threaten in really serious ways the new order that that the Mosaic text and the Mosaic law is coming to put into place. What is that law? It is a constitution. The Torah is a constitution. It's a text. And everyone, including the king now, including the priests now, everyone in this new political model will be beholding and and, um, and, uh, not just guided, but will be legislated by the text, by the constitution, everybody. That is a radical move. To have that hold means you must put down sedition. We don't have to agree that capital punishment is the appropriate punishment. I do want us, however, to appreciate the text in its own time, in its own situation, in what it's really trying to get at. So comes a leader. So our Torah is going to talk about a prophet because that's who people are used to speaking for the ruler meaning the deity. So your higher power than a monarch is the deity. The only way to get around a monarch is to say the deity said something different. So the prophet becomes somebody with direct access to the only other power that can challenge the monarch. They often run the risk of being put to death for that in the ancient world if the monarch doesn't like what they're saying. And that didn't change a lot throughout history. It still doesn't, right? Think of our the prophets of our time who were challenging power, whether it's Martin Luther King or, I mean, pick your person, right? Um, Yitzhak Rabin, um, all of them of blessed memory. What happens to them, right? Of course, they're killed. They're shot because... They're too dangerous. They're saying stuff that is too dangerous to elements of society who who need to shut that down fast. So that's always been the case with the prophet is that they've they've had a message that often is not popular. Um, Here we're talking about a prophet 
who has access to enough charismatic authority that the prophet can challenge this new order. Now, you tell me, have we seen that recently? Have we seen somebody with enough charisma and and enough being able to sway people that it becomes a real threat to the kind of society that, that we treasure as people who say we treasure democracy? That's what Torah's talking about. A prophet who, if it, he continues to prophesy and get popular and be seen as the real one accessing the real authority, meaning in this case, yud Vavay, we have a problem. Because people will believe that they're actually following what yud Vavay wants. Make America great again. This is truly American. This is what America really is and always has been. And we've strayed from that. What really is American is this version of nationalism and totalitarianism. That's America. Do you hear? Like that is the same thing that's happening here in Deuteronomy. Deal with a prophet who says, Follow what I say. This is really what yod heh wants from you. But of course, the prophet is leading the people directly away from what Deuteronomy understands yod heh wants from the people. That's the danger that Deuteronomy is addressing. That's the situation that um, this constitution is very concerned about. And if we want to write that off as, oh my God, it's hysterical. Really? Well, then call me hysterical (laughs) because I'm pretty concerned um, about. So I just gave you one example. But but on the other side, there's the same fear right now. Right. There's the fear that the government's taking all of our freedom away from us. And that's not what our ancestors fought and died for. Our ancestors did not fight and die to be told they have to wear a mask. They did not fight and die to be told by the central government that we have to get a vaccine. We get to decide what we do with our bodies, not the government. That's America. That's democracy. That is freedom. And that's what this country was founded on. Both those sides of the argument are saying our version of fighting against what's going on now is the real America, is the real set of values our ancestors fought and died for. And that is a very compelling argument. And it is a very compelling and sexy and, and, and in some ways meets all of the ways that we are afraid and, and insecure and all of that. You know, somebody has the answers for you. This is how you fix it. And this, these are the threats that we're facing from, uh, from what's happening in America right now. Okay, I want to just stop there for a second and see where everybody is. Oh, I just made the text really big and I can't see you. So I need to, uh, sorry, people, it's been a while. Stop, share. Okay, there you are. Um, I, think it's, I think one thing that's interesting, and I forget which verse it is, but when they talk about the towns, if you hear something is going on, you have to thoroughly investigate. 
So on the one hand, you have with individuals, they're talking about you got to right away go and kill that person. And on the other hand, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, they're saying when a town is involved, you really need to investigate and figure out what's going on, which I would hope would apply to individuals as well. But it doesn't say that here. Right. And the rabbis expand all of this when they talk about how this would have been legislated, because they have to imagine it. They're not living in ancient Israel. But when they imagine it, they the rabbis come up with an incredible amount of proof and things that had to have happened before you could convict a person or a town, to your point, Bert, you know, of any of this and making it almost impossible, really, uh, to because they didn't like it either. You know, they didn't like how this read or sounded either. Um, and just so you know, in the in the archaeological record, there are ancient Near Eastern um, legal documents that talk about towns that have um, betrayed their loyalty to the conquering king. So a whole town, if they if they served another king, like if they came into an alliance with a king, not the conquering king, they were destroyed, utterly destroyed. Um, and so even though to us that sounds horrifying and is horrifying for ancient Israel coming out of that model, um, saying it's not a conquering king, it's the king of kings that we're dealing with, right? It, it was language and a, and a legislative system that made sense to them. Emma Linda? Yeah, I wanted to ask this this line that's used again and again, if they entice you to worship other gods whom you have not experienced. What does that mean? When, like, if you marry into a family that worships another god, then you've experienced that god and that's okay. When do you experience another god and then that's okay? What does that mean? Okay, so great question. Um, So number one, for Israel, there is no other God that they have experienced other than Yudhei who brought the plagues, split the sea, fought on their behalf, gave them mana. Like, that's the only God they have experienced. Okay. So, so, So that's what Torah means, which is you'd be worshiping a God you have no experience with. Like, what, what have they done for you lately? Nothing. FS, bubkis, right? Nothing. How dare you? Right? And this is very much the language, again, of kings. I won the battle of the bulge. I defeated your king. I am now guarding and taking care of you against all other enemies, foreign or domestic. And you owe me your loyalty. Right? You... You can't go over to King Nebuchadnezzar. What do you know from him? What has he done for you? Nothing. Right. So this is very much ancient, um, you know, language about kings you don't know, kings who haven't done anything for you. Yudhei Vave has the same claim. Right. I, God, did all of this for y'all. You have no business worshiping anybody else because they didn't show up for you. <laughs> right. Where was Baal when you were slaves in Egypt? What, how did Asherah help you out with that? Right? So that's what Torah means. But obviously, we would expand what it means to say we've experienced right, a certain, you know, God, that way different, that word experience um, for us as moderns. Uh, somebody said that Jody had a question about, Jody, did you have a question? 
I just thought yeah. I just thought that uh, when they say if there appears uh, among you a prophet or a dream diviner who gives you, I thought, does that refer to Jesus? When was Deuteronomy written? After. Before. I don't know. <laughs> I figured it's a 50-50, so it was before. But, so it is just saying if this happens in the future. Have anti-Semites used this as an indication that Jews always plan to kill Jesus? There's arguments about whether our commentators mean Jesus when they talk about these passages. So Mm. So for instance, some questions come up about, wait a minute. If you read the Torah text carefully, it said, if a prophet or dream diviner arises among you and starts talking this, that, and the other, and signs and wonders, and what they say comes true, and they use signs and wonders to prove they're of Yudhe you still get in trouble for following them. But the commentators reading closely say, well, wait a minute. If they're not prophets of Yudhe how can they actually divine the future so that it comes true? And how can they use signs and wonders if, they're, if those signs and wonders aren't coming from Yudhe Buffet? Are you telling me other people have access to what only God's prophets are supposed to have? That's a little confusing, right? Like, how can you expect the people to differentiate? So in, in answering that question here, I'll, I'll take you to um, some of it. In answering that question... Look at that. So there. Um, can a false prophet perform miracles? Like, what? how can that be? How can that happen? And so in this conversation among our famous commentators, this is Rabbi Akiva uh, talking about what does that mean? Um, like, if how can it come true if it's not a prophet of Yudhe For Akiva, God is testing you by making that other prophet effective. Um, right. And then um, even Ezra says, no, that prophet overheard someone else prophesying and copied what they said. And it's plagiarism. And that's how uh, they could accurately read the future. They, they took a, the words of a true prophet of God and and made them their own. So in these conversations, some people want to argue, is this about Jesus? Are our medieval commentators who live in medieval, right, contexts where Jesus is a real problem for the Jews and anything the Jews say about Jesus is a real problem for the Jews and anything that they want to say the Jews say about Jesus is a real problem for the Jews Um, in those um, situations um, w- w- where they're living, if you look down here, it says, even Ezra spent the last decades of his life in Christian Europe, um, right? Um, and that he looked down on his Ashkenazic brethren, viewing them as culturally backward um, because he came from uh, the Spanish culture. But some people want to read into their comments that they are talking about Christianity. So here you'll see, uh, I believe it is possible Rashbam is polemicizing here only not against Christianity, but against Ibn Ezra. So they are talking about this. Um, much, much has been written about the extent to which Rashbam concerns himself with Christianity. So wh- wh- let me summarize what I'm trying to say here. So this is not about Jesus at all. 
This has nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus is a whole nother story and it's a later story, not about Jesus. However, there are people who want to argue that it is, that our commentators are talking about when they're arguing about what a false prophet is, that they're talking about Jesus as a false prophet. We can decide whether we agree with that or not. They didn't dare say it out loud, like specifically because they'd be burned at the stake. But um, so they didn't say it, but it's kind of like, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We don't, we don't know. We can only guess. Um, but that, that argument is certainly made by the church. And then Jewish scholars you know, are wondering about that too. Um, but certainly the same things that drove the, the um, anxiety that you see here of ancient Israel about false prophets, that for sure was at work and at play when Jesus was preaching. I'm not suggesting that Jesus was a false prophet when I say that. I'm suggesting the very things that make Torah anxious here about somebody who could undermine the political system, Jesus was absolutely one of those. He was 100% one of those because he was a critic of the priesthood, the corruption in the temple, as were many of the rabbis. He was just way more popular and way more charismatic, which meant he was also challenging Rome. And if you're that charismatic and attractive to the Israelites living under Rome, and you're encouraging them to be actively critical and maybe even going to move against Rome, That has to be put down because what does Rome do when people rebel against Rome? Oh, right. Obliterates them. And that's what happened. That's what happened in 70. Jesus is preaching. 30 years later, the temple's destroyed. Jerusalem is blown up and all the Jews are exiled. The rabbis who worried that Jesus was a problem were right. They were right. He was a problem because it brought the wrath of Rome down on Jews who were rebelling against the system. So so in that sense, Jesus speaks exactly to what is at the heart of these texts in terms of what these texts are worried about and what they're what they're truly concerned about. Okay, does that is that that was a long answer, but um, and this is why. This is why I say to people all the time, Jesus was a Jew. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He was one of the people criticizing the corruption in ancient Israel, as were the rabbis. The difference was, what do we do about that? Right? The people interpreted Jesus as saying we should rise up. I'm not saying that's what he's saying. I'm saying There were many people interpreting it that way. That was a danger for the leaders of Jerusalem. And it turns out they were right. (laughs) They were right to be worried because Rome destroyed ancient Israel. Um, Okay. So then you can decide, is that a true prophet and somebody who we needed to listen to? Right? No matter what the cost? Or, right, Akiva... Rabbi Akiva supported the Bar Kokhba rebellion. So there were rabbis and teachers who supported rebelling against Rome. There were others who said, have you lost your minds? 
You're going to take on the Nazis? You Jews with what? Picks and hoes and brooms? You're going to take on the Nazis? Really? You know what that's going to get us all? Right? So this conversation, this argument, this set of anxieties goes on whenever you have human civilizations and people trying to deal with oppression and suffering and, and a response to that. Okay, Barry? Um, I have a question about why kill the animals of the person? Um, and I'm wondering whether that clause is, is meant so that people won't abuse that uh, to take over the property of others and, and just, you know, frame them for uh, worshiping other gods. Nice. Nice. So you want to set somebody up. So you can come in, they get, they get stoned, you come in and take their stuff, right? So, so I think that's kind of the point of cherem in general. So this means it's, it's in cherem. It is in, um, what's the English word for cherem? Excommunication. Uh, anathema, right? It, you, you can't touch it. You can't have anything to do with it because it's been connected <coughs> to something this dangerous, So like Barry, very insightful, it prevents anyone from setting someone up so they can take that stuff, Um, but it's proscribed. That's that's the word I was looking for. So there are certain cities that Israel was commanded to destroy and all their stuff was proscribed because it was just too dangerous. All that stuff connected to that really dangerous element is too dangerous for you to touch, use, benefit from, and it could be a little attractive, right, to go after those people who have all that stuff. And then what if in doing that, you get led astray? So I think there is some element of you can't have that reward. Um, but in many cities, they could, right? They took, they, took the women, they took women and children as slaves. So, um, so I think there's an element of that there. But also there's, there's this element of it's taboo because it's so powerfully connected to something so dangerous that you can't have anything at all to do with it. Um, um in the ancient Near East, there were, there were so many false prophets at that time. Um, not saying that we don't have don't have them right now. If we had the habit of calling conspiracy theorists uh, false prophets, we would have many false prophets even today. So. Um, Uh, but clearly, I mean, Jesus is the most famous uh, of them who became successful. Um, there were dozens and hundreds of um, pro- false prophets who became rather unsuccessful. So we don't know them. And it's easy to point out Jesus. And clearly, even Ezra lived in Christian Europe. So um, when you read the text, Jesus came into my mind first. But then when you think about that time period, um, it could be anybody. It could be anybody before this text was written and both after this text was written. And it even applies to today. Thank you, Mehmet. Yes. Um, and look, I, I'm not so sure Jesus was a false prophet, by the way. <laughs> right? Like He had a philosophy and he had criticisms and I think he had good points and he based it in Jewish teaching and he based it in Torah. He was right on, right? The priesthood was absolutely corrupt. The temple was corrupt. He had every 
every right to go in there and flip over those money changing tables because that's all people cared about, right? So I'd like to do it today. Let's go flip some cars because people are ready to just do just about anything to buy well, right a certain kind of car or a yacht or a house. Let's go tip yeah. all those. Well, Bernie is talking about it every day. <laughs> Right. That, and that's what he like. That's what he stood for. So, like, I, I'm not even ready to call him a false prophet. Right. But there were many competing um, ideas about what the ultimate was if they got their way. That's where that's where it was seriously problematic. Right. For for the for the system in ancient Israel, uh, both under Rome and in general. Right. And in and in that, you know, the ways that he was a little more of an ecstatic and a little more of a. um lining up with kind of some of that like radical stuff we saw going on during that time period, the Essenes, you know, all that stuff in that. Yes. It's a little wacky, but, but in terms of his well, you know, political and social philosophy and the religious values that he brings out of Torah to criticize the ancient Israel authorities for corrupting, he's not wrong. <laughs> right. So Bernie Sanders is taking yes. the same perspective That's and right. we call, we call him a commie. Right. They call him a commie, a socialist. They call him dangerous. They call him, right? Absolutely. And, and actually, uh, in my little notes to myself, I'm like, right, think about communism. Think about how crazy this country went, hunting down people they thought might be communists. Why was that so dangerous? Why? People lost their minds about communism. Why? Right? Wait, that's what, that's what this is. It's like, it's something so threatening that you're convinced is possibly happening, that it has to be, you know, rooted out at, at all causes. Okay. Uh, women calling for universal suffrage were called communists and anarchists. Abs- absolutely right. Susan, you talked about land grabs, you know, based on these, you know, you, you, you know, you come up with something so you can grab farmers land and, and take their produce. So, all right, Mark, I see that you've unmuted. Do you want to say something? Yeah. I wanted to go back to the text for a minute. So, if you view the text from the perspective of foundational mythology and the world as it existed before what the text relates to, the world was full of paganism. How do you move from a world deeply implanted in a system of values and gods to a new system with God is one and everything else the Torah contains. So I think if it's viewed from a foundational mythology point of view, then it's what's really being said here is to move forward, there has to be a clear break with the past. And I think if it's viewed just from that focus, it's not quite as bad as it may sound because it's written for a particular point in time and history. Um, on the other hand, all this stuff about false gods, they existed throughout history. Shabbat Haitzvi, there are people that say Menachem Schneerson is the next Messiah. There are plenty of people who believe the Messiah is coming tomorrow. So on the one hand, we don't like part of it. On the other hand, part of it clearly speaks loudly today. Thanks, Mark. Other comments or questions? Um, 
Before we close, I wanted to share one more piece with you from Rabbi Rachel Goldenberg, um, because you know, we're talking about, we're kind of in our heads about all this, which is great. We love that. <laughs> we love Torah study. We're in our heads about it. We're analyzing it. We're looking at the historical record. We're looking at the archaeological record. We're looking at the language of, you know, when this is written, which is all great. There are elements, as we've pointed to, there are elements of this that are still so active that we don't want to, we don't want to deal with it. Like we would rather say, wow, isn't that crazy? Isn't that terrible? Isn't that radical? When, 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 and I'm owning this for myself. I, I, I completely am not putting it on you. I own it for myself. I get rabid right now when I hear certain tropes, when I hear certain things about vaccinations right? And other thing, I become out, I lose my flipping mind because I feel like it is such a threat to our public health, to our kids who can't be vaccinated, to the grandparents that they could take it home to. And you know, we've been having this conversation for a year and a half, but now I, I'm losing my mind. Like I am so angry because I'm fearful that these kinds of crazy conspiracy, nutty, fringe, crazy people not crazy people. Let me rephrase that. Crazy ideas that people are buying and believing and spreading that this could undermine seriously the health, the freedom of my kid's going to be a senior in high school. If this stuff goes crazy and she can't go to school her senior year, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do, but <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to hurt somebody. So, like, so what I'm saying is that we can look at this as kind of you know, in its context and all of that, there's, as long as we're human beings, there are going to be things that are happening in our society and around us in terms of pointing to how we run things in a society that has us lose our minds. And so I want to, and again, I'm just speaking for me. Um, So I want to share what. I wanted to tell you along, right along those lines, uh, Sharon, uh, uh, her, you know, Barry, his mom passed away a couple of days ago because from what, well, it was COVID, pneumonia, and something else also. But she had to be rushed into hospice because the caretaker, her caretaker, had the shots, the COVID shots. Irma, the, her Sharon's mother-in-law had the shots. The caretaker's husband did not get the shots. He So he contracted it, gave it to his wife, who's also now in the hospital. She gave it to Irma, and at 91, her body just blew apart, and she was dead within two days. Right. So we're dealing with a very, very scary reality, right, about people messing around with something that can kill certain parts right, of our society. And, they're, and the fact that we're arguing about that, right, like as a society is just, I'm telling you, I lose my mind. OK, so why did I tell you all that? Um, it, it's not to make it about me. It's to say, OK, so what do, how how do some of our spiritually like grounded teachers use some of these talks to talk to people like me, <laughs> right? So um, page three, where's page three? So this is Rabbi Rachel Goldenberg from the Institute for Jewish Spirituality from their uh, Torah commentary. Uh, and so um, I want to go, she's talking about our Torah portion and she's talking about exactly what we've just been studying. Um, these verses that are like, you know, 
root it out, you know, put them to death, blah, 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 get rid of it. These people who worship differently from you, who were there before you, get rid of it, annihilate it, which we know, by the way, never happened because Israel was always backsliding. Just listen to our prophets and they'll tell you. Israel did not eradicate all this this worship, but okay. But I, I miss my point. Okay. <clears throat> so she's talking about all of that. Under She says, in the context of our Torah portion, God's fear is what meaning the author speaking on behalf of God and legislating on behalf of God. The fear is that the Israelites are not strong enough in their faith commitment to withstand the temptation to check out the ways of these others and to worship other gods. God doesn't trust that we could live with others without joining them, losing our unique identity and abandoning the covenant. In fact, God here seems fearful that God may not be enough for us. In response to this fear, God requires us to get rid of any others who might compete with God for our attention now and in the future. Therefore, we get rid of those worship spaces as well as refrain from passing on stories or memories of those who used to worship there. Underlying this fear, I also detect anxiety about contagion or contamination. Our reptilian brain has evolved to propel us to defend ourselves and our communities from threats that may appear like diseases that can spread. The wholesale burning of towns seems to be a purification ritual that would stop the contagion. These responses to anxiety and fear, here she's talking to me, to burn, smash, and annihilate, emerge from the tendency of the clouded mind to choose separation over connection. If we can separate ourselves from the experience of enemies, threats, others, then we will be safe. The qualities of a clear, relaxed, open mind and heart are obscured here. Interdependence and interconnectedness seem beyond the reach of the authors of these texts. Fear, as well as the ego that is convinced it is right to commit this violence, has taken over. It is important to acknowledge at this point that the nations whom God commands us to wipe out are apparently engaged in some practices that we would find abhorrent today, practices such as child sacrifice. Our aversion to other people's behavior is often morally justified. The question here, though, is how to respond in a way that serves the well-being of all. Even when the enemy, quote unquote, is practicing morally indefensible things, we have a choice as to whether to obliterate, contain, set limits, negotiate, impose sanctions, defend ourselves, and any other number of actions in response. Even if we do choose the path of obliteration, we can be certain that threats and enemies, whether internal or external, will continue to arise. Ultimately, there is no way to ever completely purify or rid ourselves of the other who triggers fear or worry. Once we think we have freed ourselves of one, another will come along. The practice then is to train ourselves to be with unpleasantness and to relax the mind so that we might begin to perceive choices that serve connection and peace rather than separation and destruction. I, was, I watched a presentation as part of the Board of Rabbis um, 
learning before high holidays together, I hosted a session with Melissa Weintraub of the Resetting the Table organization. And Resetting the Table is all about how people coming across really, really big differences can, can talk to each other, right? And, and, can, and can sit in the same room and try to get an understanding of where the other person's coming from, not to agree with them, not to change their mind, not for us to have our mind changed, but rather, and this I'm, I'm putting it now after watching this whole amazing thing, and I really encourage you to watch their, their short, very short film called Purple, um, and it's from Resetting the Table. You can go to their uh, website and watch this film about an actual session with um, conservatives and liberals. Um, And I was so moved by, first of all, the facilitator's ability to use what they teach to really hold this space. And what I was really moved about was people were able then to, to hear past the issue and hear past the the passion at which they come down on different sides and were able to start to start to understand the other person as having fears. Thank you, Emelinda. Emelinda just put it in the chat. You can click on it right now when it will open in your browser so that you can come back to it when we close this session. Um, I think that's what Rachel Goldenberg is pointing to is there's always going to be something we want to annihilate and obliterate that, that challenges us, that get, that goes to our fear, that goes to our very core in terms of feeling like this is what's going to undo it all. And and how do we how do we take some responsibility for our own being activated? And I'm not saying we shouldn't have our p- opinions. And I should and I don't you you know I'm not somebody who believes we shouldn't speak them and that we shouldn't act on them and we should vote through them. We should give to organizations who are making loud noise about what we believe in. But it's about how do I not want to absolutely annihilate people who have a different view? Because because this Torah portion, as ugly as we want to say it is, I got to say, I'll own it. I have some of these feelings about just, just, can we just get rid of them? And that's horrifying to me. That's horrifying. Forget what they're advocating or what they believe in the crazy conspiracy crap. 9-11 was aliens. Okay. What, like whatever, like put that aside that I could feel so ugly about other people that I don't even know. I don't know what drives them to, to accept some of these things. I don't know what their fears are that they see the government Right in a way that that is the you know the the monster that that comes right out of their nightmares and resetting the table was a real opportunity for me to go wow there are people who are doing this work who are saying we got to figure out a way not to just go to the instinct of annihilate them burn it to the ground because I want it to go away because that's our instinct I want it to go away because it scares me. Because it cuts at the stuff that I care about the most and that is where my security lies or, or where I believe it lies. And so for me, my initial reaction to this text was, oh, my God, how come I can't be on vacation? I can't believe I have to teach this text. And then, as you, always, like there's there's some way that it's like, oh, yeah, Bernstein, really? Hmm. You have such an aversion to this text? Hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> right. Look no further than right here. 
because the real aversion in some ways is to my own reactivity and my own ugly desire in some ways to, to put down what scares me and, and what, what I feel is, is threatening to, to what I would call, you know, our, our society and, and its values. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.